Well, good morning and welcome to Hawaii Kai Church. It's so good to see all of you here this morning again to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. Uh, we're going to be continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, again, this is Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. If you're using the Bibles that are under your seats, uh, that can be found on page 866. <clears throat> again, Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. And please follow along as I read God's holy word. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. And he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Before we begin, uh, would you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? Father, we do thank you this morning for your holy word. And we do ask, Lord, that you would speak, that it would be by your spirit working in and through these words that, Father, you would minister to and touch each one of us. Help us, Father, to see you more clearly. Help us to perceive and understand wonderful things from your word. Only you can do this, and so we ask that you would. Please help us, Father, we pray, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, this morning, we're going to be studying these two miracles of Jesus. And I think it's helpful to know that these two miracles are part of a quartet of miracles that start in verse 22. Luke is using these miracles to show Jesus' power and authority all over all creation and that he is truly the Messiah, the Savior of the world who can forgive sins and grant eternal life to all who would believe in him. Starting in verse 22, Jesus calms a fierce storm with just his word. He is showing his disciples that he has power over the natural world. Then starting in verse 26, Jesus casts out demons, perhaps thousands, from a man into a herd of pigs. 
Jesus is revealing that he has ultimate power over the supernatural, demonic world. And in our passage today, we're going to see, starting in verse 40, Jesus heals the bleeding woman, showing that he has power and authority over disease and sickness. And then finally, we're going to see him raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. Jesus even has power and authority over death itself. And throughout all these miracles, we're going to get insight into how various people, the disciples, the bleeding woman, Jairus, and others, how they respond to the power and authority of Jesus. So as we go through these passages this morning, I encourage you to try to put yourself into their shoes and think about how you would respond to the miracles of Christ. Let's start by looking at verse 40. Now when Jesus returned... The crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Now, before we go any further, I want to point out that there were always crowds of people surrounding Jesus. And this shouldn't surprise us, should it? I mean, imagine if someone here in Hawaii Kai was teaching the way Jesus taught and was doing the kind of miracles that Jesus did. Guaranteed, you would have people from every corner of this island crowding around to hear him teach and to be healed. And so it's no wonder that when Jesus and his disciples returned from a boat from the region of the Gerasenes on the other side of the Sea of Galilee where he cast out the demons from a possessed man, that a large crowd of people would be anxiously waiting for him. Included within this crowd are two very, very different people whose only commonality is their extreme desperation. On the one hand, we have a suffering, destitute, outcast woman who's been bleeding for 12 years with no hope of healing and restoration. And on the other hand, we have a prominent leader of the synagogue, Jairus, who holds what is probably the highest, most visible position in the city. But he is also a desperate, heartbroken father whose 12-year-old daughter is dying at home. Now, as different as these two people are by the world standards, we're going to see shortly that both of them are really the same. Their differences are minuscule when it comes to their need for Jesus, and their similarities are enormous when it comes to their faith. Look at verse 41. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now let's stop right there. Now as a dad to four children myself, I can't read this passage without feeling Jairus' fear, his hopelessness, and his desperation. What do you do when your only daughter is dying in her bed. You do what is necessary. And in Jairus' mind, what is necessary is that he must get to Jesus. And so I can imagine him coming to this great crowd of people, urgently asking, have you seen him? Where is Jesus? I need him now. And when Jesus finally does appear, Jairus, presumably because of his high position in the synagogue, is given first access to him. And to the surprise of many, Jairus immediately falls at Jesus' feet and begs him to save his daughter. Now, what makes this picture so startling 
is that most of the Jewish religious leaders of that time, especially the Pharisees and scribes, did not like Jesus at all. In fact, they hated him. Although they were usually part of these big crowds who came to see Jesus, they weren't there because they believed in him or in his power. Rather, they came to test him, to accuse him, and to try to trip him up. To them, Jesus represented a threat to their status and to their religious traditions, and they were jealous of him to the point that they wanted to destroy him. And so for Jairus, who was one of the leaders of the synagogue in Capernaum, to fall at the feet of Jesus and to beg him to acknowledge before all the people that he believed in Jesus' power and authority to heal, well, at the very least, this would have been a shocking scene of betrayal to many of Jairus' peers. But when your daughter is dying, well, forget the decorum. Forget that I might be looking like a fool. Forget my pride and social status. Forget what the Pharisees and the scribes might think of me. My 12-year-old daughter is dying, and I am going to the only person I know who can help me. Brothers and sisters, this is what faith in the Messiah looks like. An absolute assurance of the things hoped for and a conviction of things not seen such that nothing else matters except going to Jesus. Now, what would make this Jewish religious leader have such a faith that would break ranks with the Pharisees and the scribes? What would make Jairus become a believer in the power of Jesus? Sure, he's desperate. But what would make him think that Jesus could actually heal his dying daughter? Well, all we have to do is look back a few pages in the book of Luke to chapter 4, where we find Jesus rebuking a demon in the synagogue. Well, guess, guess which synagogue that was? That's right. It was the synagogue of Capernaum. And as a leader of that synagogue, it is almost certain that Jairus witnessed this exorcism and saw with his own eyes the power of, over demons. Then later in chapter 4, Jesus heals Peter's mother of her sickness, and word of that healing quickly spread so that we're told in verse 40, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son of God. Now, Capernaum, from what I understand, was just a small fishing village on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And I read that in the time of Christ, it maybe had about 1,500 people living there. So I would imagine that over the course of a relatively short amount of time, there probably wasn't one lame, deaf, leprous, blind, demon-possessed person in the entire city. At the rate Jesus was healing people, he probably healed them all. And Jairus no doubt probably knew many, if not all, of these people who were healed. And those who were Jews who would come to the synagogue week after week, well, Jairus no doubt would hear from them talking about the healing power of Jesus. And then later in Luke chapter 7, we read how Jesus heals the centurion's servant. This was the same Roman centurion who helped build the synagogue. Again, guess which synagogue? That's right the synagogue in Capernaum, Jairus' synagogue. 
So when we read in Luke chapter 7 that the centurion sent the elders of the Jews asking Jesus to come and heal his servant, it's not hard to imagine that Jairus might have been one of those elders. And so again and again and again, Jairus has been witness to Jesus' miraculous power. He saw the miracles and he believed. His faith, our faith, is not a blind faith. And so in his time of greatest need, in his desperation, he comes to Jesus by faith as the only one he knows who can help him. And in humility, he begs him, save my daughter. And without a word, Luke tells us that Jesus simply got up and went with Jairus. We pick up again in the second part of verse 42. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Now again, we see in this image the crowds pressing around Jesus. The Greek word for pressed around literally means to choke. This is how thick the crowd was. Mark tells us in chapter 3 of his gospel that Jesus had healed so many that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Can you imagine all these sick and needy people crowding in desperation all around you, reaching in to touch you so that you can heal him. I think that most of us, especially in this day and age of COVID, would recoil at such a thought. But the beautiful thing about Jesus, the beautiful picture we see in our passage this morning is that without a second thought, Jesus moves right into the midst of that crowd, and he starts following Jairus to his home. You see, Jesus is not a distant Savior. He is accessible to anyone and everyone who will call upon his name. Here we see that he is willing to be pressed in, jostled, touched, and even grabbed at by the desperate ones he came to save. For that is exactly why he came to earth. He came to seek and to save the lost the dying, the sick, the weary, the prisoner, the oppressed, the hopeless. And he came to do so at any and all cost to himself. Is it any wonder that we call him Savior? Now, although this is not in the text, you can just imagine, just imagine the desperate Jairus after finally finding Jesus on the shore, he's probably urgently now making a way through the crowds, trying to make a path for him to get to his dying daughter. But then all of a sudden, in the midst of the chaotic crowd pressing in on Jesus, an interruption happens. A miracle happens. Press the pause button for just a moment on the urgency of Jairus' story. As the entire focus of our passage suddenly shifts to this nondescript woman who Luke doesn't even mention by name, but you can almost picture her in your mind's eye as she crouches down, hiding her face so that she can avoid detection, slowly pressing her way through the crowd until she finally comes up behind Jesus so that she can touch him. 
For as we are told in Mark chapter 5, verse 28, her faith is such that she believed, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And sure enough, as soon as she grasps hold of Jesus, immediately the bleeding that she has been experiencing for the past 12 years stops. Instantaneously, she knows she is healed. Now, even though we don't know this woman's name, you need to know something about her. For 12 years, she has had some type of gynecological bleeding disorder, and even though she has spent all of her life savings on trying to get better, she could not be healed by anyone. Again, Mark tells us in his gospel that she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. This poor woman suffered for 12 years with a condition that not only made her physically weak and financially poor, but had also made her a social outcast. For according to Jewish law, this woman was considered unclean. Every bed on which she lies and everything on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches these things and touches her would also be unclean and would need to wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Can you imagine the social stigma she must have been under for 12 long years? She couldn't go out with her friends and visit other people's homes. She couldn't go to the synagogue and to to worship and to hear God's word. People would learn to avoid her so that they didn't inadvertently come in contact with anything unclean so that they too would make themselves unclean or perhaps touch her. After 12 years and after using up all her money looking for a non-existent cure, I have to think that this woman had given up all hope until until she begins to hear, to hear reports and stories about a miracle worker named Jesus. Now, she probably heard all the same reports that Jairus heard, that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And so just like Jairus, This desperate woman decides to throw caution to the wind. Forget about the stigma. Forget about the shame. Forget about the societal norms. I want to be healed. I need to be healed. Again, two very, very different people with one common need. Both needed the healing power of Jesus. And this should show us that whether we realize it or not, a need to be healed of our sin, a desperate need for the salvation of our souls is what binds every human being together regardless of our personal wealth, influence, power, or social status. We all need Jesus. And so she goes for it. On this day here in our passage in Luke 8, she makes her way through the crowd, again, undoubtedly trying to remain undetected so that no one would recognize her as that unclean woman and force her to get away. She knew she had to reach Jesus, and she believed that if I can just touch him, I will be made well. Such was her faith. And that's exactly what happened. 
You can only imagine after having touched Jesus and sensing somehow that she was healed, that this woman's heart was overflowing with joy. Can you imagine after 12 years finally being cured from her debilitating disease? But rather than jump up and down with excitement, she knew she had to get away quickly. For if someone knew that an unclean woman had knowingly, purposefully touched the rabbi, thus making him unclean as well, well, she would most assuredly face some dire consequences. But fortunately for her, because of the crowd pressing in on Jesus, her unnoticed escape was almost guaranteed, except that Jesus was not going to allow that to happen. As much as she may have wanted to avoid detection, Jesus had other plans for her. Look at verse 45. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now at this point, let's unpause the story of Jairus, Jairus, who is desperately trying to get Jesus through this crowd to his dying daughter. Can you imagine Jairus' utter dismay, consternation, irritation, confusion, even anger as Jesus stops in the middle of this pressing crowd and asks what seems like on the surface to be a very illogical, foolish question, who is it that touched me? And to make matters worse, for this worried father, Luke then writes, when all denied it, meaning Jesus probably stopped and took the time to look around him and possibly even questioned some of those in his immediate vicinity. Was it you or you or you? Now everyone is denying that they touched him, possibly because there may have been others like the bleeding woman who shouldn't have been out in the crowd because of some illness or other form of uncleanliness. And so each time Jesus asked them, did you touch me? He was probably met with a sheepish answer, uh, nope, wasn't me. Until finally Peter speaks up and he says, Master, everyone is touching you. The crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Meanwhile, I imagine what I would be doing if I were Jairus at this point. I would be on the verge of going apoplectic, berserk about right now. Come on, please, hurry. My daughter is dying. Forget about who touched you. How can finding out who touched you in this huge crowd be more important than my daughter? But for Jesus, this was just as important. Because Jairus' daughter was not the only one who was suffering. There is another daughter in this story who was suffering and who needed to be ministered to by Jesus as well. Now maybe the unclean, bleeding, destitute woman wasn't as important in the world's eyes as Jairus' daughter. Maybe her life and her pain did not seem as significant to the people of Capernaum as that of the synagogue leader's daughter. But not so with Jesus. He's not impressed by human power 
wealth or status. Being the leader of the synagogue didn't impress him, and that wasn't the reason Jesus was going to heal Jairus' daughter. No, the thing that amazes and impresses Jesus the most is faith. Faith that trusts that Jesus is the all-powerful Messiah. Faith that remains intact even in the midst of suffering and fear. This is what amazes and impresses Jesus. And this is the kind of faith that stops Jesus in his tracks right now. He stops not to embarrass or to scold this woman for touching him. He stops to acknowledge her faith. We read in verse 47, And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Although although Luke doesn't give us all the details, this woman, in spite of her fear, testified before everyone of her 12 years of suffering, a humiliating ailment that made her unclean. But then she also shares of her faith, her faith that Jesus could heal her and that this was the reason that she would even dare to touch him. And finally, she shares after how touching him, she was immediately healed. Again, Jesus is calling this woman out not to humiliate her, but so that she can confess with her own mouth what she already believed in her heart, that Jesus Christ could heal her We should keep this in mind, brothers and sisters, that not every encounter that we have with Jesus will be comfortable. Sometimes, probably more often than we'd prefer, he will call us to do the uncomfortable, that which will stretch us, that which will force us to use and to rely upon our faith so that just like for the bleeding woman, our faith will grow. Now listen to Jesus' response to the woman's faith in verse 48. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This is the only time in the New Testament that Jesus uses this term of endearment, daughter, to refer to a woman. And I believe he did this so that we could see that there are two beloved children in this story. Jairus' child and God's child. And what is it that makes Jesus refer to this nameless woman as daughter? It's her faith. This woman believed in Jesus, and as simple as her faith may have been, it was real. In spite of her shameful condition, in spite of all the societal obstacles that may have prevented her from coming to Jesus, she stepped out in faith anyway and came to him. This is the kind of faith that stops Jesus in his tracks. Now let's turn back to the grieving Jairus as his story is about to take a very tragic turn. Look at verse 49. While Jesus, he, while he was still speaking, Someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. Jairus' worst nightmares have come true. In spite of all his best efforts, his daughter has died. Now, we don't know how close or how far Jesus was from Jairus' house at this point, but in a small town like Capernaum, it probably wasn't that far. And so the interruption, 
the delay caused by Jesus' interaction with the bleeding woman could very well have made the difference between life and death for Jairus' daughter. But, but we don't know for sure. Scripture doesn't give us those details. What we do know, however, is that Jesus did allow himself to be delayed. Now, this is reminiscent of the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11. If you recall in that story, when Jesus heard that his friend Lazarus was ill, deathly ill, instead of going to quickly heal him, John tells us that Jesus stayed two days longer in the place where he was. As a result, Lazarus dies without Jesus ever getting to see him. Now, when you think of the pain and suffering that death brings, the pain and suffering that Martha and Mary, Lazarus' sisters, went through when their brother died, the pain and the suffering that Jairus experienced when his daughter died, and you realize that Jesus could have prevented that pain and suffering, but instead he allowed it to happen, well, it might make you start to question Jesus' love and compassion for those who are hurting. This is the same question that atheists will bring up to argue against the existence of God, isn't it? If there is an all-loving, all-powerful God, then why is there evil, pain, and suffering in this world? Why doesn't he do something about it? Well, in the atheist's limited understanding, it's because a loving and all-powerful God just doesn't exist. But what the atheists fail to understand is that there is something far more important than human happiness and comfort. In the story of Lazarus, just like in the story of Jairus' daughter, it's important to see that death, as well as the resulting pain and suffering, were necessary in order to bring about faith. Faith. When Jesus finds out that Lazarus had died, he tells his disciples, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. And when Jairus is given the report of his daughter's death, Jesus turns to Jairus and tells him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Now, Jairus started off with faith when he first approached Jesus, but now when all hope seems to be lost, Jesus is calling Jairus to an even deeper faith. Now, what we have to understand from these passages is that as much as Jesus cares for, loves, and is compassionate towards his children, his primary, number one priority for us is not a happy, painless, carefree life. As much as we may want that, as much as we may pray for that, and as much as God often provides that, this is not his priority for our lives. His primary, number one priority for Jairus and for us is faith, that we would believe, that we would put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, even when things seem the darkest, even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even when we are suffering, Jesus calls us to believe and place our faith and trust in him. As he told Jairus, when all hope was lost, do not fear, only believe. But why? Why? Why should he believe even after his, her, his daughter is dead? Well, let's move on to find out. Look at verse 51. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. 
And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. When Jesus arrives at Jairus' house, the mourners for Jairus' daughter are already in full swing. You see, it was customary in Jewish culture when a person died to hire professional mourners, women who would wail and cry and scream and play dirges on high-pitched flutes. This was their customary way to mourn for the dead. But these professional mourners had no real connection to Jairus or his family. They're just doing their job, just going through the motions. So when Jesus arrives and sees this crowd making this commotion, he tells them to stop weeping, for the little girl is not dead, but is sleeping. And what do these professional mourners do? Well, they all laugh, because in their minds, they know that the girl had actually died. And the word used here for laugh is not just to chuckle or to giggle, but it means to scorn and deride. Basically, they were ridiculing Jesus. Can you imagine the gall of someone ridiculing the Son of God? But isn't this what people in our world do every day? You know, I think we can see in these professional mourners a glimpse of how so many people in this fallen world respond to Jesus Christ. They follow the customs and the rituals of what this world tells them they need to do And although on the outside they put on a pretty good show, in reality they're just going through the motions with no connection or understanding to the true spiritual reality of what's truly going on around them. They are oblivious to the fact that there is an eternity of either heaven or hell that awaits each person and that the determining factor of where they end up depends on how they respond to Jesus. And just like these professional mourners, so many people today, when they encounter Jesus and hear what he has to say, they scorn and deride and ridicule him, thinking that they know better. Which is why it doesn't really surprise me that in Luke chapter 10, two chapters later, Jesus curses the town of Capernaum because in spite of all the miracles Jesus performed there, they still ultimately rejected him. So yes, it is possible to witness, to accept, to receive, to rejoice in, and to evil revel in miracle upon miracle and still reject the one doing the miracles. Please, don't let that be you this morning. Now, when Jesus said that the girl was sleeping and not dead, it's not that he didn't believe that she had died. He was simply stating what the Bible teaches about physical death, that it's temporary. You will wake up. Now, what this means is that though our current mortal perishable bodies will eventually die and decompose back to the earth, the Bible teaches that we will all one day be raised with eternal imperishable bodies, some to the resurrection of life, and some to the resurrection of judgment. Again, where you end up depends on whether or not you have repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And this is why faith in Christ is so much more important than all of our earthly comforts and happiness. Finally, Let's close by looking at the last three verses, starting in verse 54. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. 
And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Now, there's several things going on here in these last three verses, but just one thing I want to highlight, which is in verse 54. Here we see that the most amazing and incredible miracle of Jesus' long list of miracles is this, that Jesus speaks. He calls out Talitha Kumi, which in Aramaic is child arise. And instantaneously, he gives back her life with just his word. Jesus brings the spirit of the dead girl back to her body, and she gets up at once. Through this miracle, and through the miracle of his own resurrection, Jesus is displaying that he has power and authority over death itself. As the author of Hebrew tells us, Hebrews tells us, Jesus will destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What this means, brothers and sisters, is this, is that for those of you who are in Christ, the sting of death has been removed. And in its place, there is great joy. We no longer need to fear death. For the believer, death is simply a temporary transition. You leave this fallen, sin-filled world, and when you wake up, you will be in the presence of Jesus, your Savior, to experience a joy that is indescribable. This is the greatest miracle that all of Jesus' earthly miracles was pointing to, that one day the Messiah, our Savior, will bring all of his children back to life, back to himself in resurrected eternal bodies and that we will be with him forever in indescribable joy. And so, my brothers and sisters, you know the end of the story. You know how all of this ends. And because you know, no matter what you're going through now, no matter how scary or fearful it may be, do not fear, only believe. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your holy word. And we thank you, God, that because of it, we are able to know who you are. And in knowing who you are, God, you have allowed us to see you, to see our salvation, to see Jesus Christ, to see that it is only through him that we can be saved. And today, Father, I pray that if there is anybody here that has not come to that decision to trust you as their Savior, to repent of their sins and turn to you to be forgiven, I pray, God, that you would grant them faith. Open their eyes. Open all of our eyes and help us to see you as you truly are. We love you so much, and we thank you, and we praise you, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.